Chapter 6 of Survivor's Tales of Famous Crimes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lucy Perry. Survivor's Tales of Famous Crimes. Edited by Walter Wood. Chapter 6 The Master Criminal. If the question were asked, who is the most notorious criminal of modern times? The almost universal answer would be Charles Peace. And the reply would be correct, for Peace has a record which is unparalleled in recent generations. He was a crafty hypocrite, a skilful burglar, and a murderer. He was so merciless and callous that he actually saw an innocent man sentenced to death for a murder which he himself committed. Peace was eventually caught while burgling, and his chief crimes having been brought home to him, he was hanged at Armley Jail, Leeds. The teller of this story, Mr. Alfred Tate, is an old sergeant of the Metropolitan Police, and he it was who, in company with a comrade, arrested Peace while he was committing a burglary at Blackheath. I joined the Metropolitan Police Force when I was twenty-five years old. I was in the force some twenty-five years, and I have been out of it as long, so that makes me about seventy-five, doesn't it? Well, that's my age, and yet, in God's mercy, I keep fit and well, and in my little quiet way I enjoy life and all it offers. I have been spared from many dangers, cholera, attempted murder, and riot amongst them. I survived the great cholera visitation of 1849. In the course of doing my duty as a policeman, I was shot at twice by burglars, one of whom got ten years penal servitude, and the other five years. I have had other narrow shaves, too many of them, but I suppose that really, the narrowest of all was when I bore a hand in the arrest of Charles Peace, though at the time of the capture I had no more idea than the man in the moon who he was. I often think that the real reason of my salvation was the carrying out of the lesson that was taught to the old London policeman. Get the first hit in. That is, of course, when desperate characters have to be dealt with. You want to hear about Charles Peace? Very well, then. I will tell you what I remember, and my memory is very good, despite my growing years. At the end of 1878, I was a policeman at Blackheath, and was on duty with a comrade named Robinson. At that period we were working in pairs, because a good many burglaries had been committed, and there was no clue to the burglar, and one of the two men was armed with a loaded revolver. On this particular night it was Robinson who had the revolver. I had my truncheon. We were on Blackheath, and it was getting very late. Midnight came and went, and at about twelve-fifteen we came across a respectable-looking man, who was sitting on one of the seats. Recent events had made us very suspicious, and I eyed the man carefully. Then I said, "'Hello, what are you doing here?' Quite coolly the man replied, "'I don't know what business it is of yours, Governor, but if you want to know, I'm looking at the lights of London.' I got rather angry, partly because of the tone of the man, and partly because I thought it was such a poor excuse to offer. So I answered, "'Don't talk rubbish about the lights of London. Get up and go away.' The man rose, muttering, and walked off, and Robinson and I resumed our beats, carefully examining the houses, especially those which were empty and were in charge of the police. It was our custom to take particular measures to give us warning if any burglary had been committed, and in one case 
that of a semi-detached house. We had fastened cotton across the doors and windows, a thin line which could not be seen in the darkness, and would be easily broken. When that line was not to be seen or felt, we knew that someone was up to mischief. It was pretty well after midnight when we examined the house, and saw at once that the line was missing, showing that something was wrong. I felt excited all at once, and the two of us stalked the house as carefully as we could, for we never knew what might be in store. We looked around the front of the house, but there was nothing to be seen. Most fortunately we did not make a noise or show a lantern, or neither of us would have been living, I am sure of that. We crept round to the back of the house, where there was a long garden, and I whispered to Robinson, Look, there's a shadow on the blind, and I do believe it's the man who said he was looking at the lights of London. We held a short council of war to decide what should be done, and who should do it. The door was open, and it was easy to enter the house, but there was obviously a heavy risk to be run. Who's going in first? asked Robinson. I don't care which of us it is, I answered, but you'd better go first, as you've got the shooter. All right, he replied, and we made our way noiselessly upstairs, to the door of the bedroom on the blind of which we had seen the shadow. We stood in the open doorway for a few seconds, and I took in a queer scene. There was the burglar, carefully and quietly examining jewellery and other articles by the light of his bull's-eye lantern, acting just as a respectable businessman would act, who was valuing articles he meant to buy. That was the look of the man, and he was calculating too, but he did not mean to pay anything for what he was getting. There he was, a littleish man, absorbed in his task, which was a merciful thing for us, because on the dressing-table near him, and within easy reach, was an ugly brute of a revolver. Robinson had his revolver out, and holding this in his right hand, he rushed into the room, calling on the burglar to surrender. Like a flash the man was on his guard, and his hand made a snatch at the revolver on the dressing-table. I don't quite know how it all happened, but I rushed past Robinson, and flew at the burglar like a bird, and struck him a blow with my truncheon, telling him that it would be useless to resist, as we had plenty of help outside. How many more of you are there? he asked and I told him to mind his own business and come out. As he seemed likely to be troublesome, I gave him another tap with a truncheon. Then we got the handcuffs on him and took him, without any trouble, to Blackheath Road Police Station, which is, I believe, still standing. When we got our burglar to the station, we carefully searched him, and though we did not just then know who he was, we knew that we had caught a very uncommon criminal, for he had a belt round his body which was filled with cartridges, and another belt which was entirely lined with skeleton keys, so that he could open any door, and he had the revolver, which we saw lying on the dressing-table, and which we took very good care to secure. It was fully loaded, so that the man was thoroughly well equipped for the risky game he was playing. All the prisoner's belongings were taken from him, and put aside, and a list was made of them in the usual manner, so that in case nothing was proved against him, he would get them back. But the articles were never returned to him, and they are now, I believe, in the museum at Scotland Yard, with many more criminal trophies relating to notorious men and women. When the prisoner had been charged in the usual way, he was asked for his name, and he promptly answered that it was Reynolds. I said, You're the man I saw on a seat at 12.15 this morning, and you told us you were looking at the lights of London. Oh, no, you didn't, 
he answered quite quietly. He had an amazingly assured way with him, and looked so eminently respectable that you might easily have believed him, but I knew that I was not mistaken. So I said positively, Yes, I did. Then the inspector turned to me and asked, Did you see him? And I assured him that I had seen the man. Then the prisoner owned up and said that I was right. He added, My name is Peace, and that made me think we had caught big game. What's your proper address? the inspector asked, and Peace gave it Queen's Road, Peckham. It seems odd, talking about the matter now, that he was so open, but I am certain that he never imagined that he would be trapped for the hangman. I am not pretending to feel any sympathy for him. He was an unmitigated monster, and deserved far more than the death he got on the gallows. It is no good wasting kindness on criminals like him. When these preliminaries had been carried out, Peace was put in a cell, and a search warrant having been issued, the house in Queen's Road was forcibly entered, and there was seen an astonishing collection of goods and articles, all or most of which were proved to be the proceeds of clever and mysterious burglaries. Peace had kept dark for a long time, but now there was a very brilliant light thrown on him and on his past. A description of him was circulated in the ordinary way, and by telegraph, with the result that a large number of detectives and other police officers came and identified him as a man who was wanted for burglaries. The net was closing in around him, and was beginning to hold him very tight, but Peace did not seem much concerned when, on the morning of his arrest, he was brought up at Greenwich Police Court, and charged with the burglary at the house where we had caught him. Formal evidence having been given, he was remanded for a fortnight. What was this man like when we arrested him? Well, he was most respectable, and he had an extraordinary knack of making a lie seem to be a truth. He was thoroughly plausible, and as deceitful in his speech as he was in his dress, and he had quite a genius for disguising himself. That was the reason why it was so hard to identify him, in many cases, as the perpetrator of crimes. He was, as I have said, a littleish man, wearing a light overcoat, a black suit, and a bowler hat. In those days we called the bowler Muller's cut-down, because of the way in which the hat of Mr. Briggs, who was murdered by a German named Muller in a North London train, had been cut down by the murderer. Peace had such an oily way with him that he could have talked a good many people into believing anything, and he was as cunning as old Nick himself. He was, in a way, fond of music and art, and there was found at his house a violin on which he frequently played. Those who heard him, and thought him a most respectable citizen, little suspected that he was the actual murderer of a policeman for whose death another man had been condemned to the gallows, and that this seemingly good and upright person was actually in the assize court when the innocent man was convicted. I will speak of that case later. I never had the slightest pity for the ruffian, and I never knew anybody who had. I don't think there was as much cheap sentiment about then as there is now. While peace was under remand, he was seen repeatedly, and the inquiries about him were conducted ceaselessly. When he was in the police court again, there was no hesitation in sending him to take his trial on the charge of burglary, and he was committed to the Old Bailey. Meanwhile, it was being realised that he was guilty of more than one cold-blooded murder, as well as of many crafty burglaries. In particular, it became obvious that he was concerned in the death of a Mr. Dyson, at Banner Cross, near Sheffield, who, 
in 1877, was shot by a burglar. A charge of murdering Mr. Dyson was preferred against him, and this meant that peace had to be taken from London to Yorkshire, to be tried at the Assizes at Leeds. The man did not want to die. He was too big a coward for that, but he must have known that his fate was by this time pretty well sealed, and that he could not escape conviction by a jury. Little as he wished to die, he desired still less to be hanged, and so, when he was being taken into Yorkshire by two warders, he made a most desperate attempt to escape from the train by which he was travelling. Watching for his chance, Peace suddenly sprang at the open window with such force and so skilfully that he actually went out head first and would most likely have been killed on the spot if one of the warders had not grabbed him by the ankle and held on to him with all his might. Peace struggled furiously to get free, head downward and hanging from the window of the compartment in that flying express. But the warder did not let go for some time, and that is all the more astonishing, because he had to hold on alone, the whole of the window space being taken up by himself, so that his comrade could not get near to help. To hold on for any length of time to such a desperate character under such conditions was too much even for an experienced prison warder, and as the train could not be stopped, there was nothing for it but to let the prisoner go, and so he crashed to the line, and the train tore on some distance before it could be stopped. Then a rush was made for the spot at which Pease had escaped, and there he was found. Not dead, as was fully expected, but too badly hurt to get away. He was taken on to his journey's end, where he recovered, and found that his desperate attempt to cheat the hangman had failed. I do not know what he supposed would be the result of such a mad leap, but he may have fancied that by chance he would escape uninjured, and that his cunning would enable him to be at large once more to carry on his scoundrel's work. It was on January 22nd, 1879, that this notorious criminal sprang from the train, and nearly cheated the gallows. It was on February 4th following that he appeared in the Crown Court at the assizes held at Leeds by Mr. Justice Lopes. The indictment charged him with the murder of Mr. Dyson. I was very glad to think that the end of the business was near at hand, because I had been in Leeds waiting for several days, and I can't say that I cared for the place. The trial began and ended on the same day, and the evidence left no doubt that Peace had murdered Dyson very deliberately. In the dock, the monster did not appear to be very much concerned, and it is said that he actually had some hope of an acquittal. His counsel did his best for him. He was defended by Mr. Frank Lockwood, who afterwards became Solicitor General, but no impression was made on the jury, who, when the judge had summed up, were only a few minutes in finding the prisoner guilty. The judge wasted no words while passing sentence of death, and then the warders closed round, and the criminal was taken away, going down the dock stairs with perhaps as little sympathy as any man ever got who descended them. Peace was taken to Armley Jail, about two miles distant, to await his execution in three weeks. There seemed to be a positive wave of relief in the country, when it was realised that this dangerous villain, who had made himself a terror to the police, as well as to the general public, was put beyond the power of doing further mischief. Any lingering doubt that might have existed as to the justice of his punishment was dashed by the confession Peace made of the murder which I have mentioned, that of the policeman Cox. On November 27th, 1876, an absolutely innocent lad named William Habron was condemned to death at the Old Bailey for the murder of Cox. The real murderer, Peace, was in court, 
and he heard the sentence passed. He knew later that the hangman was actually in the prison, arranging for the execution, yet he did not give a hint that there had been a terrible miscarriage of justice. Habron, at the eleventh hour, was reprieved, and sent to penal servitude for life. Finally, the lad, whose father had died of a broken heart, got a free pardon, but only because of what Peace confessed when he knew that there was no hope for him in this world. Peace was hanged in a semi-public way. That is to say, representatives of the press witnessed his end. He was a hypocrite and a coward to the end, for on the scaffold he made a whining speech and told the hangman that the rope hurt him. He was executed on gallows that were erected in the prison yard, and he was buried in the yard not far away. I believe the identical scaffold is in the Chamber of Horrors at Madame Tussauds, and on it is a figure representing peace, in the convict dress he wore when he was hanged. Another figure is that of Marwood, the executioner. The extraordinary public interest which was aroused in the case of peace was shown by the eagerness of people to get mementos of him. I was present at the house at Peckham, when the things in it that had been got together by this cunning burglar were sold by auction. There were all sorts of musical instruments, and there was a good deal of competition for the fiddle on which the man used to play. There were also a pony and cart, which Peace used when he was going about, and which helped him to keep up the impression that he was a person of the utmost respectability. The pony and cart were bought by a Walworth costermonger, who promptly christened the animal Charles Peace, which I think was rather hard on it. The sale lasted two days, and very good prices were realised. I imagine that some of the money raised went to pay for Peace's trial. The whole of the household arrangement showed that Peace was a man of great taste in some directions. He had an astonishingly clever way of deceiving a lot of people into the belief that he was a gentleman, and I have often thought that he might have won great success if he had turned his talents to honest efforts. The capture of such a notorious scoundrel attracted enormous public attention, and Robinson came in for a great deal of it. He was made much of, and fated, and dined, and persuaded to go on the music hall stage. In the end he was called upon to resign from the police force, and he had to make a living by selling newspapers, outside the Angel. Finally he died in a workhouse. I got nothing out of the business, nor did I expect anything, and what I never had I shan't miss. Have I the truncheon that I used on peace? No, I had to give it up when I left the force. And the bullseye lantern you see here is not the one I had that night on Blackheath when we caught him. It's a lamp I use at night in winter to show me where I'm going, because, you see, we have no gas or electric light in a little place like this, which is more than two miles from a railway station. End of chapter 6 The Master Criminal Recording by Lucy Perry in Bath on July 3rd, 2010.